Our scripture reading uh, this morning comes from 1 Peter. Uh, We'll be looking at 1 Peter verses 10 through uh, 16. We'll be thinking specifically just about that 13th verse, Uh, but I'll be reading for us uh, verses 10 through 16. You'll remember we've had a a cavalcade, we could call it, of uh, gospel truths and gospel blessings being uh, poured out upon us here in the first chapter of 1 Peter. And last time we saw specifically uh, about the, uh, the wonder and amazement, uh, the, uh, the longing that the whole Old Testament uh, realm of prophets had looking towards what you and I all have. Uh, preachers announce it, the Holy Spirit speaks it and uh, enables us to believe it. Angels long to, long to have some kind of, of, of inner knowledge of what you already know uh, about the grace of God, because angels don't experience grace, you see. There's fallen angels, there's elect angels. But they don't know anything about grace. They don't know what it is to be a sinner like you and I, saved by grace. And so we read last time how, how they long to know more about it. And so we'll pick up the reading, verse 10. And uh, read through verse 16, because we want to talk about what that, what that grace that has come to you means for your life and my life. And so, reading the word of the living God, eternal in the heavens, verse 10, 1 Peter 1, concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Remember, that's what the Old Testament's all about, the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, the prophets, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And this is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this scripture this morning. We pray, Lord, for the work of your Holy Spirit, both to enable the one who preaches to preach faithfully according to your word and anything that is not of you, that it would fall to the ground. But Lord, that for all of us, as your word is proclaimed faithfully, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and then lives to live these truths. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you, I think, have heard of uh, Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg is a uh, pastor of a church in Cleveland, uh, Ohio. He's been there many, many years. And he wrote a book a little while ago called Pathway to Freedom, which is really actually a collection of sermons, a series of messages he did on the Ten Commandments. And uh, he, opens, he opens that book this way. Every well-taught English schoolboy knows that Admiral Lord Nelson defeated the combined French and Spanish fleets at the Battle of Trafalgar. Although mortally wounded by a French sharpshooter, Nelson was able to send a final signal from HMS Vic- that's Her Majesty's service for us Americans, uh, HMS Victory to his Navy. 
At 11.15 a.m. on the 21st of October, 1805, just minutes before the commencement of the battle, this flag signal was raised on the mizzenmast. England expects that every man, can you finish it? Will do his duty. And then writes back, and so in the performance of duty, they pushed on to victory, bore testimony to the love of country that filled their hearts. Their motivation was love, but that love was defined by their obedience to command and the fulfillment of duty. This simple illustration, says Begg, provides an immediate challenge. Because if we are prepared to be honest, we face the fact that in contemporary evangelicalism, that's us, duty, along with truth, has fallen in our streets. The average church attendee, says Begg, has grown accustomed to responding to sermons that appeal to their sense of well-being. They're prepared to be coaxed, but not to be commanded, particularly if the call to duty would prove a source of personal inconvenience. Neil Postman observed that effectiveness in TV preaching was in part tied to making sure that the preacher avoided making any demands upon his listeners. This is sadly, said Begg, also true in the preaching of too many uh, local churches. Well, as clothes are made to be worn, as food is made to be eaten, um, as air is meant to be breathed, we find in the scripture that the gospel, you see, is meant to be lived. We find things like this. God declares the gospel, and then God calls for faith and repentance in that gospel. God declares the glorious work of Christ on the cross, and God uh, uh, calls us to submit our whole life wholly to Christ. God declares that we are made new creatures in Christ through the work of Jesus, and then he calls us to live as new creatures. God declares that we are fully sanctified in Christ. We're righteous in him, sanctified in him, uh, and then he calls us to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling, for it's God who works in us to will and to do. You see? So there's great things the Bible declares, uh, but the gospel, you see, is meant to be lived in our lives. And uh, when we seek to separate those two things, that is the gospel declaration and the gospel call, um, uh, one of two things will happen. If we focus solely on the grand declarations and truths of what God has done, the Christian life becomes completely objective. That is something out there, something you come to church on a Sunday morning to watch. Um, completely objective, has nothing to do with anything that's actually going on in my daily living. It's just something outside of me. It becomes a dead formality, the form without the life. And if we focus solely on the grand calls to obedience and holy living of the gospel, the Christian life becomes legalism, right? Or moralism, thinking that somehow we can earn favor with God by what we do without faith in the heart. A love of duty without a trust in the Savior. And so, friends, we must always keep these things two together. That is, the grand declarations of what God has done in Christ and the glorious calling we have to respond in faith and obedience to the calling and commands of God to be who we are in Christ. So, First Peter starts by saying, you are called, you are a chosen, you are a set-apart, you are a holy people. And then, First Peter will tell us, you are then called to live as the chosen, set-apart, holy people of God. 
In other words, we must remember that doctrine, and all this good doctrine we've already heard in 1 Peter 1, may become very dangerous if it is not worked out in practice. You know, the Bible says knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. But love, right, which is defined by, you know, love of God, love of neighbor, love builds up, you see. So those who think of doctrine, and all we've talked about so far, is simply a subject for debate or an opportunity for displaying your argumentative powers, uh, miss the mark altogether. Because in the Bible, we are taught the truth in order that it may lead us to holiness of life. This is the great object of God in giving us more light, more instruction, more teaching, more truth. Why? Uh, so that uh, by that light, we ourselves may become more full of light, you see. And then as we go forth into our lives, what are we shining to our friends and neighbors and schoolmates? Light, you see. And so, whenever your mind is instructed concerning some grand truth of the gospel, after you've molded over in your mind and heart, always say to yourself, but what is this truth? What is this doctrine that I've heard this morning or this night? Um, what does it mean for my life? How is my life changed? Or will it be changed because of what I believe? How should it influence me? What would God have me to do as the result of receiving such teaching uh, as this? Friends, what God has done in Christ is meant to lead us to a response, a response of faith and obedience. Now, the Apostle Peter did not have a problem with this. Uh, this, was not, this was not like saying some scholastic distinction and some kind of really difficult thing to grasp. Um, he, um, you know, this was something that he was teaching here in this letter to Christians, members scattered around the countryside. So here's how it goes. Early in this first chapter, he tells us about our identity. Uh, you are a Christian. Uh, you are uh, one of those who is a stranger in the world. Don't expect the plaudits of the world, but remember, you are chosen by God, set apart by God, and you're marked out by obedience to Jesus. That's how people know you're a Christian, that you reflect Jesus. We saw in verses 3 to 5, those grand declarations of gospel truth, uh, according to his great mercy, remember, he's caused us to be born again. His great mercy. So that's how the letter starts. Uh, new life, new inheritance, new insurance, new assurance. Then we saw that the faith of the Christian, verses 6 to 9, is more precious than gold. More precious than gold. And because it is, the Lord's going to send your faith trials and difficulties to refine it and to make it stronger uh, and more beautiful and to draw you closer to Him. If you don't have any trials, uh, you won't have that opportunity perhaps. To, but God's gracious and He sends them so that you will be drawn closer to Him in your faith. As a believer grows stronger, that's what trials are for. As you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, we found that you're filled with an inexpressible joy and filled with glory. That's, that's for Christians, inexpressible joy within. That is, Christians are not unmoved by the good news. Uh, your, your mind, heart, and will are completely involved. And so Peter says, you, in this you rejoice. All these great truths. You're filled with this unspeakable joy. And then last time we saw the awesome privileges you and I have as Christians. This salvation that's been fully revealed to us in Jesus, that is ours by faith, receiving Christ, resting upon him by faith alone, this salvation that is ours, you see, prophets search to know it, preachers announce it, Holy Spirit speaks it, and enables you to hear it, and angels long to know what it's like to be 
on the receiving end of grace. That's all yours. And then the end of last time, we also noticed that, you know, angels are always bystanders to grace, not participants. And we noted again the danger of being a bystander of grace, even as we come to a church every week. And we just watch the gospel go by. Always a bystander, but never a participant. That's possible. But angels long to know it. And if you're a believer this morning, it all belongs to you. And so, there is a great big therefore. With all that, all that you've just heard from 1 Peter 1, uh, the jealousy of prophets and jealousy of angels for what you have in Christ and in the grace of God, there is a great big therefore. Therefore, verse 13, preparing your minds for action. The Bible is telling us here, as we noted last time, that this gospel is, first of all, a message uh, for you. There's something you need to do in response to what you, what you hear. Because the gospel makes promises to you, uh, it makes demands of you, uh, it confronts you, it convicts you, it comforts you, it is meant to grip you. And we noted that, right? Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Grace to be yours. Verse 12, it was revealed to them. They were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, right? It's not meant, first of all, for another, all this gospel grace, all this declaration of Jesus, all the call to faith and all the call to obedience. It's not meant, first of all, for another, it's been for you. Now, you know, we have that, of course, sometimes with a sermon. I don't know. I've had this. I don't know if you've had this. You hear a speaker. You hear a, a preacher or something like that. Uh, you hear maybe someone talk on marriage. Uh, you go hear a certain Bible teacher. You read a book, and you're really enjoying the message, and you think to yourself, oh, oh, boy, you know, this was, this, this was a perfect message for my wife, you know? Oh, boy. Oh, what a, what a convicting sermon. I wish he was here to hear it. Oh, I, you know, I know so many people who don't know Jesus. If, if they were only here to hear the call to faith. No, no. Peter says, this is all come for, for you. And uh, we need, sometimes, you know, we think grace is for other people. The reason we think grace is for other people is because we think sinners are other people. Right? No, no. I need this gospel grace. I need to be born again. I need this life. I need all these blessings that are ascribed here. You must respond to the grace that has come to you. First of all, says Peter in verse 13, therefore, uh, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Now, that word, therefore, really means uh, because of this or in light of this fact. In other words, Peter's here, of course, drawing a conclusion here from everything he said before, remember? About these glorious truths of what we've been born to, of God working through suffering and, and uh, the unspeakable joy we have and our love for Christ, our eyes focused on him and, and everything the Old Testament was looking forward to. It's all, it's all ours. So uh, in light of all of that, the natural fruit of that, Peter says, is that uh, you, you need to be preparing your mind 
for, for action. Um, the gospel of God's grace here uh, is, for, is for sinners like us, and it's us who need to prepare uh, our minds. Now, when, um, uh, when the uh, Apostle Peter here uses this language of preparing your minds for action, an older translation, you might have an older translation this morning, uh, it says actually to gird up, gird up the loins of your mind. I prefer that translation. Uh, gird up the loins of your mind, because that's, that's kind of underlying the Greek language here. So gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your minds for action. Now, now what actually is this uh, metaphor that Peter is using for? Well, the metaphor used by Peter is a very simple one. The typical clothing back then, worn in those days, was not like our clothing. Most wore long robes. And these robes would be tucked under a rope, right, or a leather belt that was tied around the waist so it wouldn't, you know, the, the, it wouldn't drag along the ground. So to gird up the loins uh, would be to draw up all this loosely hanging robe and have it well tucked in the... Uh, in the belt. We do that with clothes. When you get ready to do the dishes, you roll up your sleeves. When you go to work on the car, right, you, uh, you, get, you get things clear so that you can concentrate. Uh, tough task lies ahead. Someone might, say, uh, someone might say, tighten your belt. Preparing your minds for action. It's a word in Greek that only appears here in all of the New Testament. Uh, there are similar words elsewhere. Turn with me there, if you would. So turn with me to Luke chapter 12. We want to get an idea here what the Apostle Peter is calling us to in preparing our minds for action or girding up the loins of our mind because of all that we know about what God has done for us through his grace in the gospel of Christ. And so Luke 12, verse 35, uh, this is Jesus uh, speaking. He has just talked about finding our treasure uh, in the right place in verse 34. Uh, trusting in the Father's good pleasure. And then he says in verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Same word, say, or same, similar, similar base word there. Stay dressed for action so that when someone knocks on the door, you're ready to go. It'd be kind of like, you know, you're not sure when the... Uh, um, when the visitor is going to come during the day. They just said, oh, they're going to come that morning. And so you don't stay in your pajamas. Um, you don't know when they're coming. It could come at 8, could come at 9, could come at 10. Uh, you stay, you're staying dressed for action. Anytime they could come. And you are, you're ready. You're ready. Also appears over in Ephesians 6. Turn with me there, if you would. Ephesians 6, verse 14, has to do with the armor of God about putting on the whole armor of God, right? Because we've, there's a battle to wage. Uh, in 1 Peter, we're going to find again that the church is being persecuted. There are schemes of the devil, uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 6. And then verse 14, he says this, Stand therefore, here it is, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Same word here at the base uh, of this verse in Ephesians 6.14. Having fastened on the belt of truth. Girding up the loins of your mind. In other words, Peter is saying, in light of these gospel truths, you need to understand as a believer... Uh, you are preparing for work. Uh, you're preparing for action is the word, work. 
And so, he's saying you can't afford, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't afford to have anything hanging loosely around you in your mind to hinder you in your calling as a Christian. It's going to require effort. We must always be focusing, Peter says, our attention on the task of imaging Jesus Christ. If we would be disciples of the Lord, knowing his grace, the grace that's come to us, we need to be focused uh, and need to have our complete attention. And so we need to uh, prepare our minds for action. We need to gird up the loins of our mind. Grace has come to us. Therefore, we need to gather up ourselves, our mind, our heart, our will, kind of with the, with the girdle of grace. All our thinking, all our living, all our loving. We need to be encircled by grace. Gather up that, you know, all your life and just encircle it with the truth of the grace that has come to you in Jesus Christ. Now, we know this was uh, something the Apostle Paul was concerned about. He was encircled with grace, but it didn't make him lazy. Uh, it actually compelled him to serve his gracious God. Remember these words? 1 Corinthians 15, 10. They're pretty amazing. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he was a reformed Christian. And his grace, says Paul, toward me, was not in vain, or that is without effect. So all that I believed about God's sovereign grace did not leave me dead. It did something to me. Okay. What did it do? Well, it didn't leave, it wasn't in vain. On the contrary, says Paul. No, I, says Paul, worked harder than any of them. I worked harder than any of them. Though, he says, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, you see, that's someone who, is, um, who understands that as a Christian, you, are, uh, you wear the girdle of grace. You're encircled with grace. So here's, here's the Apostle Paul saying, listen, I know everything comes from the grace of God, so I think I'll just sit back in my pew and new believers will come to me. I think I would just sit at home and I will just become, I will become more like Christ. I don't need to go to a Bible study. I don't need to gather with the other believers at Sovereign Grace. I don't need them. I don't need to pray with them. I don't need to be in worship with them. I will, I will grow in grace uh, and become more like Jesus when God wants me to. That's not what he says. He says, I know that I am what I am by the grace of God. And so I worked harder than any of them. You say, oh, yet not I, but Christ in me. The believer, friends, is not someone who does not work. The believer in Jesus Christ and all these gospel grace truths that we've just read about is the person who works the most for the glory of God, not in their own strength, not to earn anything with God, because they know that that grace is working in them to will, and to do. That's the, that's the girdle of, of grace. And we need, to, we need to gird it up, you see. We need to gird up the loins of our mind, preparing our minds for action. Now, what this tells me, and hopefully it tells you, is this, that being a Christian is not a matter of playing at religion. The Christian life is not an effortless slide into the joys of eternity. Wouldn't that be nice? Become a Christian and then um, we just kind of float up into the, into the mountains there. 
without a care in the world. And don't tell me you haven't thought about it during a sermon sometime. I wish I could just float up. We don't float to heaven on a puffy cloud or on a bed of ease. Newsflash, Monday, June 6, World Magazine. Terrorists targeted St. Francis Catholic Church on Sunday in the southwestern Nigerian city of Owo. It's not immediately clear who was behind the attack. What happened at the church? Gunmen opened fire and detonated explosives, killing dozens of people. Officials said that the death goal could, could top 50, including many children. The Catholic Diocese of Ondo State, in a statement later confirmed, the attackers did not abduct any of the priests. Nigerian Christians have continued to suffer violent attacks from Muslim extremists in recent months. Friends, in parts of our world, to profess faith in Jesus means someone will want you dead. They will hate you. They will beat you. They will stone you. Sounds like the Apostle Paul. Sounds like the martyr Stephen. It sounds like Jesus Christ. It sounds to me like this is, like this is serious business. And that's, of course, why the Bible says you need to fight the good fight of the faith. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be prepared for action. Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love what R.C. Sproul said many years ago when he was living here on earth. He said, Christians have seemingly adopted the stance that when they come to worship, they park their minds at the door, sit down for an hour or more, completely disconnected mentally from anything going on around them. It's like you, you sit down in a place of worship and just, and uh, not physically, but metaphorically, you just kind of unplug. If prophets looked intently with the greatest care at the salvation and grace that was to come in Jesus, and if angels longed to look into the things of Christ that have been revealed to you in Jesus, then surely you and I, need to gird up the loins of our mind, our mind, heart, and will with the girdle of grace and have every thought, uh, every action, every love, every emotion somehow encircled with that truth of what Jesus Christ has come to do for us and our salvation. You see, having you know, grace kind of tying it all together, right? Keeping it all together. You say to somebody, pull yourself together. The Bible says, pull yourself together <laughs> with the girdle of grace, right? You know what's been given to you? Prepare your minds then for action. Paul says to Timothy, watch your doctrine and life closely. The thing is that instead of preparing our minds for action, instead of girding up the loins of our mind and gathering our whole life uh, in the encirclement of grace, the fact is we don't gird up the loins of our mind. Usually we're, uh, the, the loins of our mind are hanging loose. So some are loose in their morality, even though they profess Christ. Like Jude warned, of them, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, that's possible. The Bible says you can take everything you heard in 1 Peter 1 through 12, and you can say to yourself, oh, that's great, and then go off and sin without any care for the Lord, denying that he's your master, denying that he's your Lord, and that's why he was uh, enabled to be able to die for our sin. He is the Lord, and that's why we have life in him. 
But some just, they don't gather up what they're thinking or anything. They just let it loose and uh, loose morality. They may profess with their mouth, but their lives are far from demonstrating the life of Christ. Some may be loose in their beliefs, and they're hanging low. And they need to be girded up with the gospel of grace. They're ready to believe anything or nothing according to whatever is said by the last speaker to whom they've listened. They have itching ears or long to hear something new, and instead of heeding the Apostle Paul's admonition, again, to to watch our doctrine closely, they haven't looked at their doctrine for years, and they couldn't find it if they wanted to. Uh, Just like when I lose my keys. You know, you lose your keys sometimes. You say, where's the key? I don't know. We can be loose in our doctrine. What what actually does the Bible say? Well, I don't know, and I'm not too concerned about it. We can be loose in our worship. We might act as though Christ has given us commands which we might ignore or, or obey according to our own good pleasure. And nothing, uh, you know, nothing connected with, with them seems to be really fastened to them so as to hold on to them. They hold nothing firmly. And everything is loose. Everything's negotiable, slipping away from them. Now here the Apostle Peter calls upon all professing Christians of that character to get out of such a state of heart and called back to a life that is encircled by grace, bound up by grace. Because, friends, a loose mind... A loose heart, unconnected to the gospel of grace, will lead to a loose life that is a life lived unconnected to the grace of God in Christ. That's why we read in Hebrews 10, 23, that we are to hold fast, hold unswervingly, the Bible says, to the hope that we confess. So Peter here is... Friends, Peter is calling for a response to all these good things. Born to a new life, born to a new inheritance, born to new assurance. God works through suffering. He's drawing you closer to him. Everything you have in the gospel of grace of Jesus, uh, uh, the the, the prophets and, and, and the angels, they would long to know more, but it's all yours in Jesus. Therefore, how are you living? Have you gathered up? All your thoughts and all your emotions and all your living and and encircled it with these truths so that you would be ready for action. Might mean ready to suffer. Because that's in fact what the people in 1 Peter were doing for their faith. Are you ready? Are you ready to run? Right? And we must be intense about it. This is what Peter's saying. A holy intensity because we're dealing with the things of God, preparing your minds for action. You know, Charles Spurgeon once spoke of those who are merely tattooed with Christianity. This is very good. What he was saying was this, there are some professors of Christianity who are ready enough to believe, but they have no intensity in their beliefs. They are orthodox so far as they go, but they do not go far enough. They have no great concern about religion. They are merely tattooed, he said, with Christianity. It is only skin deep, in other words, with them. It never gets into their hearts or affects their souls. They never end up getting around to preparing their minds for action or girding up their minds for actions. Their mind is simply loosed and hanging all over the place, unconnected from the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ, you see. It's the girdle of grace. Well, the Apostle Peter has much more to say here, but let me just uh, mention what he says here at the end of this verse, because we don't have time today. But he does say this, as we're preparing our minds for action, notice what he says, set your hope fully 
Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the wonderful thing here is that here you have Christian believers who know that grace has come to them, right? That's what, uh, that's what verse 10 was all about. Uh, this salvation, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. This is grace that Paul said that is ours in Jesus Christ. And now Paul, or Peter says, now as we know all this grace, while you prepare your minds for action, you're called to serve, and we're going to find out about that next week. What does that look like? But as you are uh, girding up the loins of your mind, gathering up all things by the doctrines of grace, remember that you have set your hope fully on... Not yourself, not your work, and not anything you are going to do, but you are, as you are preparing for action, setting your mind fully on the hope and on the grace that is to come to you in Jesus Christ, in his revelation. That is, there is future grace for the believer. We don't work, we don't serve, we don't prepare our minds for action, we don't gird up our loins, uh, trusting in ourselves or in our own works or anything like that. The Apostle Peter says, you do all that, uh, setting your hope fully not on yourselves, but on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Christian always knows that there is more grace to come. Isn't that great? We are the receivers of grace. And as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that there's more grace for us. Grace, in fact, the Bible says, upon grace. But that's where our hope, you see, is found, says Peter. Set your hope fully on the grace, that which is to come. So often we put our hopes in other, other things, or we don't fully put our hope in God's grace. That word fully there means completely or unreservedly. Unreservedly, we put our hope and trust in the grace that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And when our hope is fully there, you see, we know that that hope never disappoints, right? We can hope in a lot of things in this life, but none of them are certain except this grace, the Bible says, that will come to us. I love that scene in the Lord of the Rings and the two towers just before the the battle at Helm's Deep, great battle in that, in that, uh, in that scene. A little boy has, given, uh, has been given a sword, and uh, they're completely outnumbered by the hordes of evil there at Helm's Deep. A little boy is given a sword, and he turns to Aragorn, who's the, uh, you know, the hero of the, of, of the books. He's the king who will return. Uh, and this little boy turns to Aragorn, and he says, uh, they say uh, there is no hope. And Aragorn looks at this little kid and says, there is always hope, you see. But only a Christian can say that. Only a Christian can say that. Who knows that the war has been won. The battle continues, but the war has been won. So we, we prepare our minds for action, gird up the loins of our mind. We know what God has done for us. We know the grace that's come, and we set our hope fully on the grace that is yet to come at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close uh, with this. One said, consider the difference between a heart of faith and a heart of works. The heart of works gets satisfaction from the ego boost of accomplishing something in its own power. It might be a religious thing or a worldly thing. What matters is that the heart feels it has achieved something to boast in. That's a heart of works. The heart set on works will attempt to scale a vertical rock face or take on extra responsibilities at work or risk life in a combat zone or agonize through a marathon or perform religious fasting for weeks, all for the satisfaction of conquering a challenge by the force of its own will 
and the stamina of its own body. That's, a, that's the heart of works, to do something on our own for our own glory. The heart of faith is radically different. Its desires are no less strong as it looks to the future. But what it desires is the fullest satisfaction of experiencing all that God is for us in Jesus. If works wants the satisfaction of feeling itself overcome an obstacle, faith savors the satisfaction of feeling God overcome an obstacle. Works longs for the joy of being glorified as capable, strong, and smart. Faith longs for the joy of seeing God glorified for His capability, strength, and wisdom. Faith, too, accepts the challenge of morality, therefore preparing your minds for action, but only as an occasion to become the instrument of God's power. And when the victory comes, faith rejoices that all the glory and thanks belong to God. See, to live by faith is not to have no desire to work and to serve and to prepare your mind and heart and will for action in service of the one who saved you. Oh no, your passion is greater than all the rest. Just like the Apostle Paul, the difference is this, that the heart of faith knows that all that we do, all that we will, you see, is only according to the grace of of God. And so he gets the glory and he gets the thanksgiving for what he has done, but what he chooses to do through us, you see, through us. May that be so for us, girdled with grace, you see, grace at the beginning, grace in the middle, grace at the end. And we gird up our loins today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Grace has come to us. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. Oh, Lord, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our uh, indifference to the gospel of grace. Forgive us for our uh, indifference to the, to, the, to the great work that you have done in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection, that we might truly have a life to live. Help us, Lord, to see today that all that the prophets long to know more of, the angels desire to look into, has come to us in Jesus. And help us to wrap up our whole life, mind, heart, will, thought, whatever it is, with that girdle of grace surrounding us, encircling us, to encourage us, strengthen us, and drive us on as we prepare our minds for action today in the United States of America that we would be your faithful, chosen, holy, set-apart people as strangers in a world of sin, that they might come to see something of the glory and the light and the holiness of our God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.